The Daily 202's Big Idea is sponsored by DXC Technology. Let us show you the way to your digital future. Thrive on change. Good morning from Grand Rapids, Michigan. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Monday, March 9th. In today's news, the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. tops 500. The two men claiming to have won Afghanistan's presidential election will hold dueling inaugurations today. And Saudi's crown prince detains two more relatives he views as rivals for the crown. But first, the big idea. The first thing Bernie Sanders wants you to know about Joe Biden is that he's his friend and a decent man. But Sanders wants you to know some other things about Biden, too that he once supported cuts to Social Security, that he cast a vote to prohibit federal funding of abortions, and that he used to favor a ban on openly gay people serving in the military. At rallies this weekend, Sanders has cautiously tested new and forceful attacks on Biden's record on gay rights and women's issues, potent critiques aimed at two key constituencies of the Democratic Party. At the same time, Sanders is increasingly assuring crowds at the beginning, middle, and end of his speeches that he will support Joe Biden if he loses the primaries. Those two messages highlight the challenges facing Sanders as he campaigns in the Midwest ahead of a crucial primary in Michigan on Tuesday. He campaigned here yesterday and held a rally last night at the University of Michigan with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. He's in Detroit this afternoon. Joe Biden starts the day in Grand Rapids and finishes it tonight in Detroit with a rally with Kamala Harris. Sanders won a major upset in Michigan over Hillary Clinton in 2016, and a Biden victory here would be a major setback, not just symbolically, but also in terms of delegates. Biden, though, appears to have the upper hand, and he's much better positioned with key constituencies than Clinton was to win the primary. For much of this campaign, Sanders is focused on economics and inequality, attacking his opponents for accepting donations from billionaires and opposing Medicare for all. But what's new is this emphasis on social issues, which have usually been tacked on at the end as sort of an afterthought in Sanders' stump speeches. The new lines come at a critical moment for the Sanders campaign, which is trying to find some way to regain momentum after losing 10 of the 14 states on Super Tuesday. Tomorrow, in addition to Michigan, Idaho, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, and Washington will also vote. Though Sanders racked up wins in early states, he's struggling. And now, according to the AP, he's trailing Biden in delegates. Biden could start to rack up an insurmountable lead among delegates if he does as well as expected on Tuesday. On the stump, Sanders frames his new attacks as a way to emphasize his own liberal record, noting that he supported gay rights when it was not fashionable, unlike Biden. The supercharged contrast on social issues, Sanders says, is crucial to give voters a clear picture of who has the vision to lead. Now, the Biden campaign didn't return requests for comment about the new attacks from Sanders. In recent days, Biden has largely avoided taking on Sanders directly, instead pitching himself as the unity candidate. Sanders has at times looked uncomfortable making these attacks. Absent during the sections of the speeches on social issues are his typical gesticulations and booming crescendos. Instead, he reads carefully from his notes, looking down intently, often taking several rhetorical heaves to wind up to his point. The strategy comes with risks. Already, there are fears that Biden may not be able to energize Sanders' base if he wins the nomination. Many Sanders supporters have expressed uncertainty about whether they'd cast ballots in November for anyone but Bernie. 
As he's escalated his attacks against Biden, Sanders has sought rhetorical cover by pointing out that the eventual nominee will have to be able to withstand the president's bellicose campaign style. And he stressed that President Trump will be a very formidable opponent for a lot of reasons. And that's why women in the LGBTQ community need to be excited about the nominee. Unlike when he's talking about Biden, cautiously, Sanders' comments on Trump are scathingly personal. He calls the president a pathological liar, a fraud, a racist, and an autocrat. He regularly accuses the president of never having read the Constitution. So by those standards, the final stretch of the Democratic nominating fight may look tame. Notably, Sanders has not mentioned Biden's son, Hunter, whose business associations have already become fodder for Trump's attacks and were at the center of the congressional inquiry that led to the president's impeachment. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, a virus-stricken cruise ship has finally made its way to California to dock. The Department of Health and Human Services says that the Grand Princess cruise ship's More than 3,500 passengers, at least 21 of whom have tested positive for the coronavirus, will be quarantined in California, Texas, and Georgia. Some White House officials privately believe the number of U.S. cases, now over 500, will double or more in the next 48 hours. At least 21 people have now died and more than 30 states have announced infections. Washington, D.C.'s first confirmed case is the Reverend Timothy Cole, the rector of Christ Church in Georgetown. A church spokesman says Cole was present for three services last Sunday, attended by 550 people. Virginia announced its second case on Sunday evening, bringing the total number of cases in the Washington area to nine. A case of the virus at CPAC brought the virus closer to Trump. The president was photographed shaking hands with Matt Schlapp, the chairman of the American Conservative Union, who confirmed that he had been in direct contact with the infected man during the Conservative Political Action Conference, as it's known, last month. The handshake at CPAC put Trump just two degrees of separation away from the virus. While the White House maintains that Trump was never in direct contact with the infected person and doesn't have any symptoms, the close call at a political event underscores how this outbreak threatens to upend the president's routine as he campaigns for re-election. There's growing tension among Trump administration officials who now view the rapidly spreading outbreak as a black swan event that could consume the president's fourth year in office, even as Trump himself remains reluctant to see much cause for concern. Worries about the president's personal health have escalated as the death toll from the virus has risen, and most of the victims have been senior citizens. Trump's personal doctor, Sean Conley, now attends some White House meetings about the coronavirus, tracking carefully where new cases are being reported. The White House is also being cleaned more regularly, and people with flu-like symptoms are being urged not to come into the complex, with the added warning that they may infect the leader of the free world. And Senator Ted Cruz, the Republican from Texas, said in a statement on Sunday that he briefly interacted with that infected person while at CPAC and will self-quarantine at his home in Texas out of an abundance of caution. He said he does not have any symptoms associated with the virus, though. Congressman Paul Gosar, Republican from Arizona, tweeted Sunday that he and three of his staff are under self-quarantine after what he called sustained contact at CPAC with the person who has the virus. Sanders and Biden, for their part, both plan to forge ahead with campaigning until public health officials tell them otherwise. The AFL-CIO, the largest group of labor unions in the country, announced that it is canceling its presidential forum, which had been scheduled for Thursday in Orlando. Sanders and Biden had been planning to attend. Markets suffered dramatic losses this morning. That's expected to continue today, although there's been so much volatility. 
Global oil prices suffered their sharpest plunge since the 1991 Gulf War, while 10-year U.S. bond yields dropped to a record low as investors looked for safety. And in Italy, authorities are struggling to lock down about 16 million people. They plan to lock down large swaths of the north of the country. It's the first major attempt by a democracy during the coronavirus crisis to radically halt the routines of daily life, an effort that will have significant impacts on civil liberties. But in the hours before and after the measures became law or went into effect, people continued to stream out of the northern hubs of Milan and Venice on trains and planes, heading to southern Italy or elsewhere in Europe. Sunday provided the first glimpse of the lockdown, European style. It was quite different than what we saw in China, and it's much harder for some of the European countries to control movements of people than it was for China. Data released by Italy on Sunday night underscored the urgency, though. Active cases there jumped more than 1,300 in a single day to 6,387. Deaths in Italy jumped by 133 to 366. Number two, the two men claiming to have won Afghanistan's presidential election are going to hold parallel inaugurations in Kabul today. Both ceremonies are set to begin around the same time and will occur just yards apart in different compounds. Afghan President Ashraf Ghani and his main rival, Abdullah Abdullah, both declared victory last month when long-delayed election results were finally announced. The results said Ghani won just over 50% of the vote, but Abdullah declared them invalid due to fraud. Initially, both inaugurations were planned for the morning, but they were delayed until this afternoon, minutes after they were set to begin. The delay is the result of pressure from the international community to mediate between the two men and unify the government. Ghani repeatedly pledged during the campaign that he would not accept another power-sharing government, and Abdullah warned that he would not accept another election with results marred by fraud. These same two guys were also the top two contenders in the 2014 presidential election when complaints of fraud were so widespread that the process collapsed amid threats of violence. U.S. officials eventually brokered that power-sharing agreement, but that proved dysfunctional when both leaders blamed it for their limited political accomplishments. This turmoil comes as the Afghan government is set to enter into peace talks with the Taliban tomorrow. One of the requirements of the peace deal signed by the U.S. and the Taliban last week was that intra-Afghan negotiations begin on March 10th. Political divisions in the Afghan government will weaken their standing in the talks. The peace talks between the Afghan government and the Taliban are going to be more lengthy and complex than the U.S.-Taliban talks, which focus largely on the withdrawal of U.S. forces and security guarantees. It's not clear if Afghanistan will remain a democracy what the future of civil liberties might be, or the makeup of any post-peace national security force. That's all up in the air in these upcoming talks. Number three, two senior princes detained in a crackdown against potential rivals of Saudi Arabia's powerful crown prince are being held in private villas and have been allowed to call their families. As speculation about the motivation for the arrests swirled, the Saudi royal court sought to quell rumors that King Salman is in poor health releasing photographs they said were taken Sunday that show him greeting Saudi diplomats and appearing to be well. But the detention on Friday of the king's younger brother, Ahmed bin Abdul Aziz, and one of his nephews, Mohammed bin Nayef, sparked rumors that Salman's health might have deteriorated, prompting the bold move by MBS, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. That's the king's son and heir. And he's been moving against members of the royal family. It was royal guards who detained the two princes as they responded to an early morning summons to meet the crown prince at the palace. The princes have in the past been considered heirs to the crown. Ahmed asked relatives to send him his bisht. That's a robe worn for official engagements. 
This is prompting speculation that he might soon be forced to make a public appearance under duress. At least two other princes, Mohammed bin Nayef's brother, Nawaf, and Ahmed's son, Nayef, were also detained in what appeared to be a bid to intimidate the highest echelons of the royal family. As many as 15 senior princes may have received summonses to the palace for interrogations. Rumors flew that the princes were plotting a coup that the 84-year-old king had died or was dying, but no evidence has surfaced to substantiate any of these rumors. The arrests were consistent, though, with MBS's authoritarian style since he became the de facto ruler in Riyadh in 2017. His purges have ensnared a wide range of people, journalists, clerics, women campaigning for the right to drive, and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed and dismembered inside the Saudi consulate in Istanbul when he went to pick up a marriage license. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, March 9th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. Don't forget to wash your hands. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thank you.